that, that was my third time watching that video, and still it is so powerful every time. Uh, it's my pleasure at this time to introduce our guest speaker for today. His name is Pastor Dan Anderson, and he is currently serving as the staff pastor at the Union Rescue Mission in Skid Row in Los Angeles, and he also serves as Director of Strategic Partnerships and Ministry Development. After serving as a pastor in a local church for 25 years, God called Pastor Dan into urban ministry, working with those experiencing homelessness. Pastor Dan and his wife, Betty, have been married for 43 years and have two adult children. And they also started their own nonprofit called Deed and Truth, which works to build relational bridges to connect people who want to change with those who want to make a difference. Would you join me at this time in welcoming Pastor Dan Anderson to our pulpit? Let's welcome him together. Good morning, church. Well, uh, thank you for that introduction, Pastor Daniel. I want to do a little follow-up to the video before we open God's Word. I invited James uh, to come today. He's a guy that I mentor, and uh, he's been out of the mission for a number of years. This video is actually a number of years old. And uh, as I was mentoring James, um, we were talking about why he wasn't was getting kind of stuck after the video. He sent that email out, and then he didn't really move on anything. And so we discussed, uh, when are you going to take the next steps, and what's holding you back? And uh, he said, I'm afraid. So we said, okay, well, what are you afraid of? He goes, well, I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid if they say, no, I'm going to feel more rejection. And I'm afraid if they want to meet me, then I'm, I don't know how to step into this at this point. And so there was this uh, struggle he was having. Well, uh, through mentoring and through time and through his discipleship process, he eventually did uh, reach out to his parents and talk to his mom and dad, and they live in San Diego. And I was speaking at Biola about three years ago, and uh, he had just come back that very day from his very first visit with his family, and he came and shared a little bit about that. This is now three years later. And uh, one of the things we talked about with James was, um, James, your dad and mom aren't, aren't young, and you don't want to lose a window of opportunity uh, before you don't have that opportunity to reconnect. And uh, so he finally got motivated. He went down to see them. He's been going down on a regular basis to San Diego. He's getting reconnected with his family. And uh, it was going uh, very, very well. And he's, uh, he was going to come today, but he had a commitment at his own church in Los Angeles today. But I, I do want to pass this along. So a few months ago, I got a call from James. And he said, hey, pray for my family. My dad was killed in an automobile accident. And we talked about that. <clears throat> and he was going down and spending a lot of time with his mom. Uh, but but uh, he said, Dan, I remember when you told me that I only had a window, and if I don't take my opportunity, I could uh, maybe never see my dad again or uh, clean things up at home. And by the grace of God, uh, he moved on that, and the Spirit of God allowed him to have the courage to face his fear, and he was seeing his parents regularly, although, uh, and he still is, uh, although his dad has passed. But when I see that video, uh, such a powerful experience for me as well. Uh, I can't really see it without uh, my eyes leaking. You know what I'm saying? 
Well, anyway, that's an update on James. Let me pray for us, and then I would like to talk to you from God's Word about this uh, very topic. Father, thank you for the work that you did in James' life. I know he is so grateful. You've done such a good work in his life, and people who want help, you bring people alongside of them in your spirit to accomplish that desire. And there's a group of people in this room I know who care very deeply. Their leadership has invited me to come and share what you're doing on Skid Row and in other places around here. And uh, just to ask you to guide the leadership and this congregation, each person who calls this their church home, as they think through uh, what their calling is as it relates to those who are experiencing homelessness, those who are poor, those who are overlooked and under-resourced. And we pray these things in your name. Spirit, be our teacher this morning. Amen. I was thinking about this idea of slogans that companies have. Uh, It it was a very common thing for a number of years and still is today. And uh, sometimes they hit and sometimes they completely miss. Let's talk about some misses first. Schweppes. Uh, They couldn't understand why their new campaign in Italy wasn't working until they found out that when you translated their slogan into Italian, they were no longer selling tonic water, but toilet water. Didn't fly. Uh, Lost in the translation. Kentucky Fried Chicken. They, uh, if you remember this, if you're old enough to remember, uh, remember what their slogan was? Finger licking good. But they couldn't understand in, in China why it wasn't working until they realized it was translated, eat your fingers off. And maybe my favorite, Uzbekistan Airways uh, has on every airplane, and their slogan on every commercial is, good luck. <laughs> uh, it lost something in its English translation. Uh, actually, it means goodwill in their country, and it's kind of the country slogan, uh, which is supposed to mean, you know, blessing to all. There is one slogan, though, that really hit home, and it's still flying strong 30 years later. It is considered the greatest uh, campaign slogan of the 20th century, and that is the story behind Nike's Just Do It. Does anybody in the room, that's the first time you have ever heard that slogan's name? Of course not. The whole world knows about it. Well, here's the interesting backstory. There was a guy named Dan Whedon who was hired by Nike back in the 80s to uh, try to um, redirect their uh, campaign because they were losing ground to Reebok. And they had let go the year before of 20% of their employees. They were struggling to maintain market, uh, their market value. And so what they did is they hired him And uh, he made six commercials. And the day before, he was going to present this to uh, the leadership of Nike. He started panicking. And he said, you know, I got six really good commercials, but there's nothing to tie them together. There's nothing memorable that makes it cohesive. And so he decided the night before, he was going to make this huge presentation, already had the commercials. And he said, I'm going to look up famous last sayings. And when he did, he came across a guy that was uh, a criminal right there in Portland where the headquarters of Nike was. His name was Gary Gilmore. You may even have heard of him. He He was a murderer. And 
the story goes that back in those days, they were trying to stop uh, uh, corporal punishment, capital punishment, and what was happening was uh, Gilmore didn't want it. He wanted to die. And so he, uh, rather than try to prolong this to try to get out of it, he said, no, I want to be, be executed. And in those days, it was a firing squad in uh, Oregon. So he literally went before the firing squad, and they said, Gary, do you have any famous last words? And he said simply this, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, Dan Weeder, who's going in to see Nike, it struck him, hey, you know what? What if I change that a little bit so I don't have to give Gary Gilmore any credit or any money? And uh, I'll, I'll just change it to just do it. Because for Gary Gilmore, let's do it meant I've got, uh, I, I want to move into this firing squad and get this over with. For Nike, it was telling athletes all over the world, just do it in the face of whatever it's holding you back. Just do it. Move into it. Take action. Be proactive. And I started thinking as a Christian, what are we supposed to let's do? What is the it for a Christian? What is it that God would want us to just do? Or let's get after. I started thinking about this concept that Jesus came down to, from, to the planet. He lived incarnationally amongst us. And then he was ascended back into heaven. So here's my question for you, church. Wouldn't he be more effective just staying here? And I realized uh, he needed to die for our sin. That was his, his purpose in coming. But what was the purpose in the ascension? Why didn't he just stay here after the resurrection? Wouldn't that be a lot of proof for a lot of generations? Why leave? Well, when he left, he said, I'm going to send a comforter. and He's going to be inside every believer in every nation. And I want my people to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the body of Christ on planet Earth. And so my question to you as members of that body of Christ, what does it mean to you to be the hands and feet of Jesus? I want to look at one passage of scripture, one story in Matthew chapter 8, first four verses. And I want us to evaluate this idea of what does it mean to be the hands and feet of Jesus? In other words, if we're going to let's do it, what is the it? You ready? Let's look in those first four verses and we'll put it on the screen and I will read it to you. When he came down from the mountain, this being Jesus, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. What is your it? What does it mean to be the hands and feet of Jesus? I want to offer you three insights from this passage that will answer that question. And here's the very first one. Are you ready? Jesus engaged regularly with the under-resourced and the overlooked. Jesus engaged regularly with the under-resourced and the overlooked. Now, this is Matthew chapter 8, the very first verse. 
Those of you who are uh, students of the word, you know the three chapters that preceded chapter 8. 5, 6, and 7. Jesus, the most famous sermon he ever preached. It's the longest one recorded in scripture. The Sermon on the Mount. There were great crowds of disciples followed him up the mountain and he laid out this discourse. Powerful discourse. To a great multitude of people. And then the very next thing that Matthew wanted to tell us about was this experience of after he came down from the mountain and these great crowds were following him, he wanted to highlight one individual person that he was going to talk to. And no, it wasn't the mayor of the city. It wasn't uh, uh, any Roman official. It wasn't uh, somebody from the media. It wasn't some big business owner who was a big donor. It was a man who had an infectious disease called leprosy. Now, I don't need to educate you on what leprosy is. You understand what that is. It's a skin disease, and uh, it was incurable. And so these people would have been sent out of town, and they would have to avoid everyone. If you had leprosy, you no longer could go to church. You no longer could shop in the marketplace. You no longer could attend any kind of public meeting. As a matter of fact, if you were part of a family, which you would have been, you're going to be separated from your family. If you're a husband, you'll no longer see your wife. If you had children, you'll no longer interact with your children. Your mother and your father, you're dead to them. As a matter of fact, if anybody happened to come near you where you were quarantining, and we know a little bit about quarantining, don't we? Boy, that's no fun. Uh, they would have to shout out, uh, unclean, unclean. Could you imagine every time somebody came near you, you had to speak about how filthy or dirty or contaminated you were? Well, that was the case with this person. We don't even have their name. But what we see here is an interesting contrast and balance that Jesus had. And I think, church, if we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we need to have this same balance. You know, there is a time to come and, and gather regularly, together corporately but this isn't where the ministry is done this is where you're getting trained educated and empowered the work of the ministry that jesus did is out in the community it's much easier to come in here this is a safe place to talk about jesus not so much out there jesus engaged regularly with the under-resourced and the overlooked. As a matter of fact, it's funny, when, when we read scripture, we tend to put ourselves into it in the current culture, and we try to find a place for me in the story. And, and I imagine most of us would see ourselves as disciples, so we were probably on the hill with him. And we probably think that's, that's who Jesus hung out with. But by the way, think about the people. Everybody in this story, even those great crowds, they were uneducated, they were all poor, and they were all oppressed by Rome. There wasn't something like this. So Jesus always hung out with the poor and the under-resourced and the oppressed and the disenfranchised. But here he highlights one individual who's, who's, who's really the least of the least. He's at the end of the block as it relates to the community. And so if I asked you, who was the primary target of Jesus' ministry on planet Earth? In other words, what did his hands and feet touch the answer is 
the under-resourced, and the overlooked. Really, quite frankly, we're Gentiles, most of us here, I would imagine. We would have been the Romans in this story. We're neither of these groups. We're resourced for the most part. And and based on 99% of the world, we're rich. Jesus engaged regularly with the under-resourced and the overlooked. I want to tell you uh, something that's interesting to, to think about. In Matthew chapter 11, the same book, Matthew told us a story about John the Baptist. And when you're thinking about who was Jesus' primary target and what was the distinctive quality of his ministry. In other words, the hands and feet of Jesus when he was here. What was the distinctive quality of his ministry? I'm talking about Jesus himself. Well, it makes me think of Matthew chapter 11 where Matthew tells us the story where John the Baptist, one of the greatest followers and disciples of Jesus, was in prison about ready to get his, his head removed from his neck. And you know, John was a tough dude. He wasn't afraid to be a martyr. But you know what he didn't want to be? He didn't want to be a martyr for something that wasn't true. And so he was getting a little nervous about it, and he wanted to go into this thing, you know, kind of like Gilmore, I'm, I'm ready to do this. But he said, could you two disciples go see Jesus and, and just make sure he's the, he's the one, he's the Messiah, who I think he is. And so sure enough, they go and they see Jesus. They pose the question that John asked them to pose, and Jesus didn't answer him. He said, hang out with me today. And so they watched what Jesus did. And then after that day was over, here's what Jesus said to him, to these men in verse 4 of chapter 11. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. And listen to this. I want you to listen to the distinctive quality of Jesus' ministry and who are the recipients of the ministry of Jesus. Listen to this. Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is everyone who is not offended with my ministry. Did you hear the list of people who were the recipients of... By the way, that quote, that statement that Jesus made was actually a quote from one of the uh, prophets in the Old Testament. Because here's the concern. Everybody wanted to know, well, who would this Messiah be? These prophets were given from, from the Spirit of God. The identifying characteristics of the ministry of the Messiah. And it'll be very different than every other leader. This is how you will know he's truly the Messiah. Many will come in the name saying they're he. But this will be his distinctive ministry. Look at that list. The blind, the lame, lepers, the deaf, the dead, and the poor. Do you know who at the time was ministering to this group of people? Nobody. Who's ministering to these people today? Whoever's being the hands and feet of Jesus. James said, Jesus' half-brother who finally figured it out, he said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit 
the orphans and widows in their affliction. You know how you know what true religion is? How do you help those who can't help you? And by the way, I've read this many times, and one day it really jumped out at me. Did you read the verb? Did you hear the verb? See, I used to focus on the, the orphans and widows, and that's what was popping out at me. Oh, yeah, the group of people that we should be ministering to, right? To differentiate, you know, love given. But did you hear the verb, what you're supposed to be doing with the orphans and the widows? To visit them is the command. Isn't that interesting? Jesus engaged regularly with the under-resourced and the overlooked. And if the church of Jesus Christ today is going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we must do the same. How are we helping and visiting the hopeless and the homeless? You realize this is not a suggestion for a ministry project. It is a command of the church. The question is, how do we do it? And that's where God gives us some freedom. Even when you think about when uh, Peter, James, and John were sending out Paul and Barnabas as the first Gentile missionaries around the world. In Galatians chapter 2, here's what Paul said. The only thing they asked us when they sent us out was to remember the poor, the very thing we were already eager to do. How did that get lost in the current church? Helping and ministering to and visiting those who are under-resourced and overlooked is the defining characteristic of the ministry of Jesus Christ and should be not a one-off ministry of the church but front and center if we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus because he left gave us the Holy Spirit to empower each one of us to be a part of that army that ministry team insight number two not only did Jesus uh, regularly engage with people like this but Jesus exemplified a particular way to do it. Look at this really interesting statement. Jesus, verse 3, stretched out his hand and touched. What are the verbs? He stretched. I love that. I think that may have a little bit of symbolic meaning as well. He stretched out the body of Christ with his hands, right? With his arms. His feet brought him right to the man. And his, with his hands, he stretched out his arm so that his hand could touch the leper. Now, I have a question for you. Did Jesus have to touch him to heal him? Now, you're probably saying, well, no. And that's the right answer. You know what's really curious? Do you know, verse 5, the, the next verse, the next story after this leper story is a story about a Roman centurion whose servant was sick. And the centurion came to Jesus and interrupted him, knowing he was a Gentile. He says, look, I don't really deserve to be in your presence, uh, but I know you have the power to heal, and I have a servant back home I really care about. Jesus, would you heal him? And Jesus said, all right, let's go to your house. 
And he said, no, 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 no. I don't deserve to have you at my house. I understand how authority works. And I know you have the authority over illness. Jesus, if you want to, say the word. And I know you can heal him from right where you're standing. And sure enough, he was healed. You see, Jesus is the God over space. He doesn't need to actually be there. He didn't need to touch this guy. What, why did he do it then? Is it possible he wanted the people there and us who read this later to realize something very important? You see, Jesus exemplified a certain way to minister to folks like this. And here's your second insight from this passage. Jesus exemplified a hands-on, deeds-oriented approach. The way Jesus did it was hands-on. And it was action-oriented. Jesus stretched. He, uh, when I think of us stretching, what, what, is it, what is it stretching? You know, um, like when you're working out and you're stretching, you know, who likes to do that? that that's, that's a little bit painful, isn't it? It's a little bit tedious. It's more difficult. You see, God wants the hands and feet of Jesus today to get stretched outside of their comfort zone. We need to exercise those muscles of reaching out to people who are not already in. We don't exist. You know, church is one of those few things that doesn't exist for the people who already go there. At our church years ago, we were trying to get a sign. We were right off the 5 Freeway in San Clemente, where I was a pastor for over 20 years there. And uh, we tried to get a sign out front, and they wouldn't let us. The city would not let us because there was a sign ordinance. And you'd have to get special privilege to do that. And so what we tried to say is, look, we are an organization that does not exist for the people who are already here. Because they were telling us, well, your people already know where your church is. You don't need to advertise that this is a church. I go, well, we kind of built it to make it look like a, an apartment complex so we wouldn't, we'd fit into the neighborhood. And so people don't know. And uh, we couldn't convince them that we existed for the people who didn't already come. But church, we know that. We're here to reach the people who aren't here. Jesus exemplified a hands-on, deeds-oriented approach. He wants us to get out of our comfort zones. Human beings struggle with that. We all do. Man, I remember I was in Chicago doing some uh, work at, uh, to finish my degree at Moody Bible uh, Institute. And uh, I, was, I was already a pastor in California. And so as I, as I went out there, I was staying at a, at a hotel. I'd walk by this area where a lot of homeless were. And I was going back to school to become a better pastor, a more compassionate pastor. Uh, and and uh, as I came by, there was this guy, this homeless fellow, selling homeless newspapers on the corner. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, this is awkward. I don't know what to say to this guy uh, I, I, he's going to ask me for money. What's he going to do with it? This probably isn't smart. I don't even know what to say to him. I, and you know what? I got to get to class to be a more compassionate pastor. So what I did is I, I would uh, kind of wait till he was talking to somebody. I'd actually linger as I, I'm, I'm very strategic, by the way. And I was strategizing how to avoid this awkwardness. And I succeeded. 
He'd talk to somebody, I'd sneak by. Well, I did this for a couple days uh, when I first started working on this degree program. And uh, it was almost like I had a conversation in my head with God. Now, I didn't hear a voice, and, and it always, I'm a little leery of people who, who actually talk to Jesus a lot. Um, but I, 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 here's, here's kind of the thinking I had going on in my head. And it was kind of like a, if, if, if I could put it into a conversation, it would be something like this. Hey, Dan, are you proud of yourself? Uh, well, Lord, what's the conversation content? I'm, I'm not sure. You know the fellow on the corner that you've been avoiding? Oh, yeah, that, that was weird. Yeah, that was awkward. I didn't know, really know what to do. And, 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 and it was though in my head I knew something. Don't you know, Dan, that I died for that fella? And do you know why your hotel was on, that he's in route from the hotel to the school? I want you to talk to him. I don't know how. We'll figure this out together. So after class that day, I went back, I found him, and I walked up to him and I said, excuse me, sir, I need to apologize. And he said, I don't even know you. I go, and that's why I need to apologize. You should. I have been avoiding you. I've been treating you like you're invisible because it was awkward for me. I don't know what to say to you. I don't understand you. I don't get it, being homeless. But I have, so, so if you'll accept my apology, I have an offer for you. I said, how about this? Would you help me with this awkwardness? If I buy you dinner when you're done working or whatever it is, you're, when you're ready, could I buy you dinner and could you educate me on what it's like to be homeless so that this isn't so awkward for me? Because not only am I a Christian, I'm actually a pastor. And I just, I don't know what to do. He said, I'll take you up on that. His name's Andre. And we became good friends. And for six years, I'd go back uh, weeks at a time to go to school. And after school, I looked forward to after school better than the school. You know why? Because Andre and I would hang out, and he would educate me. We'd walk around the homeless community. He'd introduce me to his friends. He'd explain to me about how to, at the beginning of the month, bled money so they could buy their drugs and buy other things. And at the end of the month, they were sharing cigarettes because nobody had any money left. He taught me all kinds of things about uh, what it's like to live homeless. But I got to tell you, even as a pastor, I wasn't stretching. It was only years later that God called me to go work at the mission in downtown in, in, in Skid Row. So I went from San Clemente at the beach with, a, you know, a, a nice six-figure salary that you'd never think pastors would make uh, to, to, to Skid Row in Los Angeles. And uh, once, it took me six months to realize I had been infected with materialism, by the way. So I, I'm sharing stories I'm not real proud of, but I'm trying to explain something to you. I get it. I'm not a superhero. I'm not Mother Teresa. I struggled with stretching and touching. You see, stretching and touching is, it's, it's personal and it's practical. Jesus wanted that man to be touched because the man needed to be touched. No one had touched that man, much less had a conversation with him for however long he's had this disease that he'd been quarantined. And he had no hope of ever changing that. But Jesus had a hands-on, deeds-oriented approach. You see, being the hands and feet of Jesus is loving by doing. I know you care. You're Christians. But can you name 
two poor people by name? Some of you can. What's sad is I couldn't. I was in a nice community. I, 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 sometimes I, I, I refer to us as being bubble wrapped in South Orange County behind the orange curtain. We need to stretch. We need to touch the lepers. We need to feel their disease and not be afraid to touch it. Oh, it's so hard. It, I don't know what to do. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take me out of a place where I feel like I'm in control. I know. Isn't that exciting? That's faith. I got to the place down in South Orange County. I said, God, I don't even know if I'm living by faith anymore. I don't even know if your spirit is involved. Maybe I just know how to pastor. God, I'm a little scared of that. So I asked God, God, what could I do in the next 10 years? I figured I had one good run in me, Daniel. And I said, what could I do in the next 10 years that will make the greatest difference 10,000 years from now? Whatever that is, God, would you give me the courage to step into it? Because I'll probably be afraid of it. And he said, you know, through a series of situations, it worked out that it was the Union Rescue Mission in Los Angeles. And then I realized in order to do this job well, I'd have to live there. So I, I, I always tell people I'm the only person I ever know who moved into Skid Row on purpose. I said, I'll take the gig. Don't tell me how much it pays because I've already had to work through that. I'll just do it. And, uh, I'll but I want to live with the men at the mission. And if you, if you let me live out of my office on a hide-a-bed uh, so I can be there after hours and hang out with the guys, I need an education hands-on. And I need to build trust quickly. I don't want them to think I'm the, the white guy from South Orange County who's rich and is going to solve all their problems. I don't see it that way. But I had to prove it. Jesus exemplified a hands-on, deeds-oriented approach. Uh, I started out probably right where you're at right now. Um, and this is where God has taken me. I'm, I'm not God's answer to the homeless. Uh, I, I, quite honestly, I have less answers and more questions now. But loving is doing. It's a verb. And discipleship in Western culture has tended to become uh, uh, synonymous with intellectual learning. But I think uh, if you attended Jesus' seminary with the uh, other 12 disciples, the original apostles, you would have said that uh, Christian seminary is all about practical service. Being Christ-like is being a better lover, exemplified in our deeds. James said, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Because hearers only are actually deceiving themselves. Whoever is generous to the poor, Proverbs says, lends to the Lord. He will repay him for his deeds. What are we doing for the under-resourced and overlooked? Do we have a hands-on, deeds-oriented approach like Christ did? And lastly, third insight about how Jesus did it. Jesus emphasized a hand up, not a hand out approach. You see, Jesus never left people the way he found them. I'm not talking about feeding the homeless. Quite honestly, there's a lot of it out there. If you don't do it, guess what? They're still eating. And I don't mean to sound heartless, but uh, as, as a 
Pastors Association on Skid Row, uh, we were quoted all over the country by telling people to do something that was counterintuitive. Please don't come down to Skid Row to feed the homeless. It's counterproductive. Why? Because we're enabling people to continue to live in dysfunction and, and disease and, and live in a, in a way that animals live. We're, we're at the Union Rescue Mission, we're not proponents. When we say we're here to, to be proponents of homeless, uh, those experiencing homelessness, we're not suggesting they live on the streets and in the parks and at the beach and that it's okay because they don't have money. No, that's no way for people to live. They need to be brought inside. They, if whatever we're going to do, pastors and leaders and church, we can't leave them the way they are or it's not really producing anything lasting. Jesus emphasized a hand up, not a hand out. Jesus reconnects the disconnected, like James. It wouldn't have been enough just to bring James a meal sitting on the sidewalk. He needed to get inside. By the way, give a, give a job and a home to people who live at the beach or on Venice uh, or, or at the park somewhere. Give them a job and a home. And... I would be surprised if the, the high percentage of them don't land back where they started because their problem is not, at our core level, a housing problem. Homelessness is not a housing problem. It is a human problem. There are human needs that are not being met. You see, love makes you functional, and without it, you're dysfunctional. We tell people in our program, Recovery, uh, uh, let's put it this way, addiction is not, uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's not our goal. Does, you need to be sober, yes, but it's not the focus. The opposite of addiction is connectedness. You see, the reason why people have addictions is because they're covering up a pain of an ill somewhere deep inside of them, and it always stems from relationships or lack of it. Broken relationships or isolation. And that's why addicts will isolate. So give them a job and a home, and guess what? They're not going to be able to get along. They don't know how to do it. The things that we know how to do to be functional, we learned probably in our home. Wait till you hear the backstories of these people. And even James had a decent home, and he still fell into this. We need to help reconnect people like Jesus did. Look what Jesus did. He offered them a hand up. You know what he said? He said, now, I've healed you. But we're not done. The story didn't end there. He said, now, I want you to go to the priests and offer proof the way Moses taught so that you can be reconnected with the community and your family. We're not done at the Union Rescue Mission just simply by finding somebody in an apartment. It's not a housing problem, although there is a significant housing problem. But their problem stems from human brokenness and a lack of love. And guess what? That is a commodity that the church thrives in. We have the source of the solution in Christ. We can't leave people in their current. Jesus didn't do that. He doesn't accommodate dysfunctional lifestyles. He didn't say, okay, continue to live in your quarantine. No, he said, go 
to the priests, get back and get back to the community at large and be a part of it. Jesus always calls all of us to a new way of life, to be transformed. Homelessness ministry that is effective must be transformational. Jesus moves people out of old destruction, destructive living habits into new patterns of living. And it's really basically this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When I first got involved with the mission, before I was even a staff member there, we were running a, a, a men's conference there. Instead of doing men's conferences at the, at the clubhouses where I had used to take the guys from South Orange County, I told them one year we're going to do it downtown at Skid Row. Uh, Fifty of the men ended up showing up, a little bit lower than we normally get, maybe usually get 100, 150. But these 50 men experienced something. And the first night of the first year we did it, this guy comes forward, he comes to Christ. Uh, we decide to start a mentoring ministry with the men in our church from San Clemente to Skid Row, 60-some miles away. Uh, and we had a number of men take us up on it. This one fellow's name was Manuel, and he, he, he shared a story. And, and uh, he called me one day and said, hey, Pastor Dan, would you come to my daughter's funeral? I go, oh, no, what happened? He goes, well, the baby daddy came over to the house. Do you know that term? I, I, we use that a lot downtown. Uh, unmarried, the, the father of the child living with the mother who doesn't, isn't really fathering. Shows up at the house and in front of the kids, shoots the mother, kills her, man, his son, his, his daughter. And then he turned the gun on himself and killed himself. So we're at the funeral. Uh, me and his mentor, his mentor and I are the only two white guys there. And... He says, Dan, I got a gift I want to give you. And I'm going to close with this illustration. He said, uh, I want to give you this coat. And I go, you don't need to give me a coat. I have plenty of coats. He goes, no, 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 no. Don't you recognize the coat? He said, it means something to me. I know you don't need a coat. Look at what I just gave you. And I held it up, and I looked at it, and I go, I, I need another clue. He goes, that's my prison coat. You see, he spent more than half of his adult life in prison for violent crimes. Only got out on a technicality. Ended up at the mission. He said, Dan, before you guys came, I had my bads packed. I was going to leave. But somebody said they're giving away free T-shirts if you go to this men's meeting. So I came. He said, I was thinking of not only checking out of the mission, but checking out of life. And he was the first one forward, all crying like a baby to receive Christ. He then got mentored years later. He gives me this coat, and he says, I'm going to tell you why I'm giving you this coat. He said, because of the work that you and your church have done in my life, I want you to know the old Manuel would have uh, gone and gotten his gun, gone over to that fellow's parents' house, and I would have killed him. I realized they didn't have anything to do with it, but if my family suffers, his family's going to suffer. He said, I'm giving you the coat as a symbol that I have no desire to do that. As a new man in Christ, I know that's not a solution to my pain. Now, you might be thinking, wow, an evidence of discipleship is that you won't kill someone. Yeah, for some people, that's huge. And they need our help. You see, Jesus 
emphasized a hand up, not a hand out, and he transforms lives. And guess what? When you get involved, if you're feeling stuck in your faith, if you're feeling like you're not really growing, if you feel like you're not being challenged in your walk with God, is it possible you're not living by faith and stretching and touching people's diseases? You're not really being the hands and feet of Jesus? If that's you, we've got a great ministry for you. And, and we're getting together with your church leaders to think through better ways to work together and partner on this. So maybe more on that later. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. For this challenge from your word, Jesus, we're just blown away at your courage, at your love for people who aren't always very lovable, people we would tend to ignore or avoid or overlooked and under-resourced. God, help us to be your hands and feet and guide this church and its leadership to know how they can practically step in and have a hands-on, deeds-oriented approach. And God, help us all to engage regularly with those who you love so dearly, who you came to serve during your time on this planet. In Christ's name, amen.